Hello and welcome to Affable Chat. My name is Benjamin. This is my co-host Joey. Hello and how's it going? And today we're talking about the end of the tour. Now a remembrance of writer David Foster Wallace. He was found dead in apparent suicide on Friday night. Wallace's novel Infinite Jest brought him fame and a wide audience. Writer David Lipsky has this appreciation. <clears throat> to read David Foster Wallace was to feel your eyelids pulled open. Some writers specialize in the away from home experience. They've safaried, eaten across Italy, covered a war. Wallace offered his alive self, cutting through our sleepy aquarium, our standard TV, stores, political campaigns. Writers who can do this, like Salinger and Fitzgerald, forge an unbreakable bond with readers. You didn't slip into the books looking for a story, information, but for a particular experience. The sensation, for a certain number of pages, of being David Foster Wallace. If anything, there was a conscious attempt to not give over a direction. Although, of course, you end up becoming yourself. This is an American biographical road trip drama. Directed by James Ponsolt. The cast includes Mark Zuckerberg, Marshall Erickson, Principal Mullins, Amy Bruckheimer, and Peter from the office space. Still in an office, no, no less. Yes. <laughs> I watched this movie on Amazon. Joey, how did you watch it? I watched it on YouTube. All right, Joey, why don't you give us the synopsis for The End of the Tour? Based on a true story, The End of the Tour follows David Lipsky, a mediocre writer and a reporter for Rolling Stone magazine, as he attempts to interview American author David Foster Wallace right after Wallace publishes his magnum opus, Infinite Jest. Lipsky, the reporter, goes to Illinois and follows Wallace around everywhere for five days. The two cover a wide range of conversational topics, some of which are about Wallace's book, a book that is being heralded as one of the greatest works of fiction of all time. Lipsky follows Wallace to Minneapolis St. Paul for the last stop on Wallace's book tour. There, they meet two of Wallace's female friends and hang out together. Wallace is a strange figure with a strange mind, and Lipsky has a hard time getting Wallace to let his guard down and be vulnerable. Wallace is obsessed with being misrepresented, and Lipsky doesn't do much to put him at ease. The two men fight and argue, and they separate on strange terms. Years later, Lipsky gets a call telling him that David Foster Wallace had killed himself. Lipsky then goes on to write a book about this shared road trip. That book is the basis of this movie. All right, Joey. Uh, fantastic. Great synopsis there. Let's start. Thank you. Let's start with our pros and our cons. What did you like about the end of the tour? Absolutely stunning performance from Jason Segal. Um, I, I'm honestly blown away. I am not a big Jason Segal fan. Is that even how I say his name? I say Jason Siegel. I'm not confident that I'm more right than Siegel, you. Siegel, whatever. We He's know who a, you're talking about. I, I don't like How I Met Your Mother. Um, I really like the show Freaks and Geeks and Undeclared, but in both of those shows, he's kind of like an arrogant asshole. And so I think that's kind of colored him as an actor for me, which maybe isn't fair. Uh, but he is he absolutely like disappears into this role. And it's incredible. 
Uh, we'll talk more about that in a minute. Uh, Jesse Eisenberg is kind of typecast as a nervous jerk, but he also does a really good job. <laughs> um, the whole movie is very condensed, simple, well-paced, mundane. This movie is is totally and cinematically moving. It's just so delicate and captivating throughout. What about you? What did you like about it? Yeah, no, I, I agree with all that. Uh, just amazing acting. It's interesting to see a movie where it's just focused on two characters. And I think that their performances really carry the movie, especially Jason Segel. Uh, it, profound topics are covered in this movie. It really makes you think. I agree. It is simple. It's refreshingly simple. This movie doesn't try to be more than it needs to be. Um, and then just great dialogue, which I think goes along with the great acting. Just uh, always interesting to listen to what the characters are talking about throughout the movie. Now, Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. The dialogue is definitely totally supported by the, just the delivery. You know, it's, it's one thing to have something interesting to say, but to say it in such a, like a captivating way and with the way that they the weird way that both of them talk right. is, is really elevates this. Totally agree. So let's talk cons. What did you not like about the end of the tour? I don't want to get into this too much right now, but fetishizing suffering, um, which I think is extremely weird, especially in this specific case. Um, yeah. Why is, why is Lipsky such a tool throughout this? He wrote the book. So why is he so, why has he come off so bad in this movie? Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, like there's no arc for Lipsky really that justifies his behavior at the end of the movie. And he didn't even publish the interview. Okay. <laughs> I cannot overstate this. Like this whole movie is about an interview that he is conducting for Rolling Stone on David Foster Wallace, right? He never writes the article. He never publishes it. They never, but they don't mention that in the movie. <laughs> why not when that that's, that's the, there's a there's this huge theme about reporting and like the nature of reporting and and stuff and then for him to never even report never even finish the article yes like, um and just but i mean just to play devil's advocate like the information from the interviews eventually does come out in his book uh much later sure sure but still i, I don't know it's just such a weird thing to omit from the movie um and then of course the thing you have to ask every time you come across anything like this, that's based on your story, how much of it is real? Right. And I echo that as well, uh, especially with, uh, and we'll get into the larger context of like representing David Foster Wallace after his death. But like, I think that's a great question to ask. How, where does the real David Foster Wallace end and where does the movie David Foster Wallace begin? Um, and also, I think... I think this kind of goes along with like your Lipsky, your criticism of the Lipsky arc. Uh, like mm -hmm. I thought that the uh, having your editor who's like, listen, the only reason I want this story, get me pictures of David Foster Wallace using heroin. You know, like that's <laughs> the only thing that matters to him is, is, is like finding out about the heroin drama surrounding David Foster Wallace. It, it ends up being totally inconsequential and o over the line to, to ask about, especially mm -hmm. at that point in their relationship days into it where Lipsky is like, well, I've got to do it now because obviously this interview is, or this article for Rolling Stone is so important. I have to let my editor ask this ridiculous question, especially because I'm definitely going to write this interview, by the way, and, and it's not, <laughs> this isn't just totally pointless. So anyways, I don't want to get, I'm, I feel like I'm coming across too harsh, but I, I felt like there were times that they tried to inject drama into an already interesting situation that didn't need to be injected mm. with that, with, you know, f fluffy kind of made up drama. So, those are our pros and our cons. Let's get into the overall section. Joey, take it away. 
I I really love this movie, um, despite some pretty glaring flaws. Um, Jason Segal, again, totally blew me away. So much of this movie relies on him in, in his delivery, his subtle movements, the way he sits or walks around. He quickly he quickly disappears into the role of David Foster Wallace and just becomes this person who is larger than life, yet so simple and so ordinary. David Foster Wallace, like the actual person, was really complicated and lived a really complicated inner life. Um, you got a really good sense of him with no ego at all from Seagal. It's just absolutely incredible. Um, Jesse Eisenberg, I think, is an underrated actor, um, and he's he's really great in this as well. There's there's nervous little laughs he does, uh, the uncomfortable pushiness, the constant judging, and also soaking in of the shared spotlight that follows Wallace. He's really easy to hate. He does a really good job at also portraying another really complicated person. Um, yeah, I agree with that. Like, I did not expect this movie to be so balanced between our characters. I, I thought it was going to be entirely about David Foster Wallace, but Lipsky does get a significant portion of the spotlight uh, throughout this movie. Absolutely, and and well deserved too. I f- I feel like it is a lot about him and about his about um, the kind of nature of reporting and like his role um, in this in this relationship. Um, the movie is is completely supported by both of these performances, and they absolutely deliver throughout. Just like you said earlier, um, this is some. Of, I think this is some of the best acting of any movie we've done on the podcast so far, honestly. Um, and the rest of the movie is comfortable taking a back seat. There aren't any elaborate set pieces or locations, no fancy special effects or huge complicated stunts. It's very contained, very simple, takes place in tiny little rooms or a cramped car or in the coach seats of an airplane. The movie also really takes its time. There are long drawn out conversations that really let you uh, tell you a lot about our characters, long transition scenes that linger but don't overstay, and moments that let silence tell you all you need to know. I totally agree with that. I thought the pacing was fantastic. There's these nice little kind of scenic, simple breaks in between sequences that allow you to maybe soak in some of the stuff that they've just covered. Um, You know, because it it can be exhausting to just listen to two guys talk to each other about (laughs) like, quote unquote, like deep topics for an hour and a half. And I think the movie does a great job. Is that a comment on this this podcast? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, well, no, of course, no one would ever get tired of listening to us, but uh, I think that they do just such a great job of breaking it up so that it stays uh, entertaining, it stays consumable, and um, yeah, I, I just think that it's really well put together. Like, they don't need those scenes to be more interesting or anything. It's just kind of a moment to catch your breath. Yeah, that one moment that really stands out in my memory is the scene where they're out in the snow walking the dogs near the very end of the movie and they're just kind of looking at the horizon yes. and it's i mean it's in the midwest there's not like mountains or anything it's not like a beautiful scenery necessary it's just kind of like blank white snow everywhere and they're both like admiring the landscape and talking about how pretty it is but it's not like especially interesting or unique it's not like they had to go to some special location necessarily to get that shot right it's um, not like david know. foster wallace is like now this is where i get my inspiration from this particularly transcendent like right. scene he's yeah it's it's very normal or mundane right which i think it says a lot about him and about just um this the kind of affect he puts across right he's very he has very ordinary taste um and that influences a lot of the things that he talks about um 
so Wallace and Lipsky are immediately distrustful of each other. And I was kind of expecting this to be a sort of sh two shy people that end up connecting in a, in a really real way and discovering they can learn a lot from each other. But instead, the movie, um, the more the story goes on, the less Wallace seems to trust Lipsky and the more Lipsky becomes convinced that Wallace is putting on a front to appear a certain way. Wallace is painfully self-aware. He's constantly talking about how he wants to come across and how he's hoping he doesn't sound silly or dumb or crass. He talks way more about the interview itself and is far more interested in how Lipsky is perceiving the situation than he is in constructing a certain situation. Despite this, Wallace is extremely gentle and kind. He lives alone with two dogs. He doesn't have many friends or a girlfriend. He's generous and forthcoming when asked directly about almost anything. Wallace seems to want Lipsky to like him, not to impress him. I'm sorry, man. What's wrong? It's just you're going to go back to New York and, like, sit at your desk and shape this thing however you want. And that, I mean, to me, it's just extremely disturbing. <laughs> Why is it disturbing? Because I think I would like to shape the impression of me that's coming across. I yeah. I, I, I don't even know if I like you yet. I'm so nervous about whether you like me. He's, he's soft-spoken and talks with a sort of surfer's casualness, but he uses these long, list-filled sentences with evocative metaphors and often says surprising and profound things to Lipsky's questions. And here's, so here's another quote. Here's, this is a long one. I think if the book is about anything, yeah. it's about the question of why. Right. Why am I watching all this shit? Right. It's not about the shit. Right. Yeah. It's about me. Okay. So why am I doing it? And what's so American about what I'm doing? You know, the minute I start talking about this stuff, it sounds, number one, very vague, and number two, really reductive. No, 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 I don't think you're being vague or reductive at all. Okay, because I don't have, like, a, a diagnosis or a system of prescriptions as to why we... And when I say we, I mean people just like you and me, mostly white, upper middle class, obscenely well-educated, doing really interesting jobs, sitting in really expensive chairs, yeah. watching the best, most sophisticated electronic equipment money can buy. Why do we feel so empty and unhappy? Right, no, it's kind of like Hamlet, except with, with channel surfing. I'm not saying that watching TV is bad or a waste of your time any more than, like, masturbation is bad or a waste of your time. It's a pleasurable way to spend a few minutes, but if you're doing it 20 times a day, right. if your primary sexual relationship is with your own hands, something is wrong. Yeah, except at least with masturbation, you know, some, some action is being performed, though, right? Isn't that... that that's better. Okay, you could make me look like a real dick if you print this. <laughs> no, no, I'm not going to, but if you can, speak into the mic. Yes, you're performing muscular movements with your hand as you're jerking off, but what you're really doing, I think, is you're, you're running a movie in your head. Mm -hmm. You're having a fantasy relationship with somebody who is not real, strictly to stimulate a neurological response. So look, as the internet grows in the next 10, 15 years, and virtual reality pornography becomes a reality, mm -hmm. We're going to have to develop some real machinery inside our guts to turn off pure unalloyed pleasure, or I don't know about you, I'm going to have to leave the planet. Why? Because the technology is just going to get better and better, and it's going to get easier and easier and more and more convenient and more and more pleasurable to sit alone with images on a screen given to us by people who do not love us but want our money, and that's fine in low doses. But if it's the basic main staple of your diet, you're gonna die. Well, come on. In a very meaningful way, you're going to die. 
so you can like just listening to that right you you kind of get a real good sense of the way that david foster wallace at least the way he writes and kind of the way that he speaks and and just the the way that he kind of dives deep into something and just kind of goes further and further into it until you come away with this sort of chilling uh realization um which is kind of similar to the if you read some of his writing it's it's similar to how he writes um yeah do you have any comments about this about this quote about technology well, well i mean it's it's definitely one of the reasons i became interested in david foster wallace is because of his critique of media culture even in the 90s uh and how you know that his criticism is even truer today uh even d despite him having died over a decade ago and um yeah I, I think this movie like this is a good emulation of a david foster wallace kind of uh run-on sentence I, I shouldn't say run-on <laughs> sentence because david foster wallace is actually like famous for including these page long sentences in his books that are grammatically correct so they're not run on sentences but he's able to go on the stream of consciousness that is profound and uh feels so true uh yeah and that's i mean you have to have that if you want to encapsulate who david foster wallace is absolutely so so lipsky coming into this situation um has read all 1,079 pages and 388 endnotes of Infinite Jest and is convinced that David Foster Wallace is some sort of genius, or at least some sort of savant. He wants to drill deep into Wallace's past, speak to his parents, learn from his childhood, learn about his experiences with drugs and depression, you know, the juicy stuff. Oh, yeah. However, however, despite Wallace's uh, welcoming and empathetic nature, Lipsky is standoffish, constantly shoving his recorder in Wallace's face and hesitant to answer Wallace's questions, even if those questions were ones that Lipsky asked first. What's so interesting about that quote that we just played is Lipsky immediately like excuses himself from the situation. He tries he tries some of uh, Wallace's dip and then he goes to the bathroom to raid his medicine cabinet and and uh, find out what kind of drugs he's on. Um, which but like this is like this is a crazy like kind of revelation i guess you could say from wallace like to for him to kind of open up in this uh, see inside of his let you see inside of his mind for this moment and lipsky's response is to deflect and to go somewhere else right he's like oh that's a cool quote i've got what i need here you know what i mean it's it's not um he's not willing to engage with him in any sort of actual conversation you see that over and over again in this story so let's talk about these characters in depth now Okay. So the two men are constantly prodding at each other, trying to get past the other's armor. Uh, Wallace talk, thinks that Lipsky is viewing him like a specimen under a microscope and has no real interest in him as a person, just as something that writes incredible fiction. Lipsky thinks that Wallace is faking his modesty and humility and is much smarter than he's letting on. Neither are able to resolve this, but both are sort of right. Wallace certainly holds all the cards and is complete control of his environment. When Lipsky oversteps, Wallace quickly tells him lets him know and is not shy about rebuking him. Lipsky uh, feels threatened by Wallace, both because Wallace is a better writer, but also because he seems to connect with people in a way that Lipsky, Lipsky cannot. Wallace, despite his introversion, is a very keen observer and enjoys the company of people. But Wallace cannot, cannot view Lipsky as a person because Lipsky does not view Wallace as a person. Lipsky is supposed to be observing Wallace, but seems to be completely oblivious to Wallace's uneasiness and is unwilling to let his own guard down. But Lipsky is literally staying in Wallace's house, using a shower, eating his food. 
This acts as a criticism to the nature of this type of journalism. Lipsky is not there to be Wallace's friend and wants to be objective in his research, but this comes at the cost of Wallace's distrust and rejection. Wallace's great talent was seeing things clearly. In these moments with Lipsky, he sees Lipsky as a person who wanted to know him, but Lipsky only saw him as a subject, an oddity, a curiosity to be studied. What's weird is that Lipsky clearly felt that he and Wallace actually did connect. Maybe that is another thing that Wallace was good at. He got inside people's heads and changed the way you thought. But it was clear to me that Wallace only put up with Lipsky and did so because he was polite and sympathetic to Lipsky's mission. They did not become friends at the end of the movie, but Lipsky did still felt close enough to hit about close enough to him to write about him anyway. These two men are supposed to be expert communicators who can uh, communicate effectively, uh, but they but they cannot. They they are not good at communicating when they're face to face with each other. When Lipsky talks, Lipsky when Wallace talks, sorry, Lipsky isn't really listening. And when Lipsky asks a question, Wallace doesn't trust it. They dance around each other, trying to suss the other out, physically and occupationally so close. But when they meet face to face, they cannot see each other clearly. It's fascinating. <laughs> yeah, it's a kind of a great contradiction with these oh, guys yeah. being such like uh, you know galaxy brain level writers to be able to be face to face and not understand each other. Although I do want to say there are definitely moments of connection where, uh, you know, they have kind of, uh, you know, they see each other for a moment, but, um, yeah, I think that that's like such an important contradiction to point out is that these two guys are well known or even employed just for the express purpose of, uh, being able to communicate and face to face. It's, so tough despite these long eloquent conversations yeah it, it's it's interesting because they spend all this time together and then they don't end up any closer by the end of it oh well they, they sort of do right it, but they don't there's still this this wide gap between the two of them and they don't seem to be able to to they don't seem to be able to bridge that or even willing to or not willing to try but unknowing how to do that right they don't seem to know how to get to the other person, which is just so strange to me, I guess. What I think is like, what I guess the question is like, what is the line? Like what, how should Lipsky have handled this situation? I feel like I would know, I know how I would have handled the situation. You know, if I'm, if I'm coming into some place where I want to know about some person, I think the easiest thing to do is to tell them about yourself first, right? Like mm -hmm. I, you know, ask me anything you want. I'm going to ask you a bunch of questions, right? And probably make you uncomfortable but you can ask me anything and i'll be i'll be honest with you like i i think that kind of thing establishes some sort of rapport and it makes you sympathetic to your subject which you know maybe that means you're less objective as a reporter but like so what you know the point is to the point is not to be like to air his dirty laundries to do a profile about an interesting person right someone that Lipsky's already decided is interesting because of the book he wrote so why is why is it so hard for him to view him as a human being um when wallace is so easily trying to make that happen right like sure. wallace is trying to break down the barrier between reporter and subject and Lipsky is unwilling or unable to do that True. Although I do think some of that comes from just the total magnitude of who David Foster Wallace is, because it's, it's easy to look at someone like that as some sort of like, you know, galaxy brain, like genius, where it's like, sure. I'll never be on that level to but, like, you, but as soon as you him meet him, that all of that like goes away. You know, he's in this tiny house, like with it's all it's like 
cluttered. He's got these two big dogs and everything. He's a huge guy, but he's like really kind of unkempt. You know, he's he's not like well dressed or anything. And he talks in such a weird affect. Like he's not like this. You know, he doesn't have like a British accent or like he, t he or uses even like really really fancy words or whatever. He says like in his sentences. You know, he's he's very much he's very much putting on the at least front of being a normal guy. Yeah. So it, it's weird that like. Lipsy doesn't take that at face value, I guess, and is so convinced that this is some sort of, um, this is sort of act to him, you know? Sure. No, definitely. And I, I mean, that's part of the confusion too, is like just even discerning if this is being, like you said, like being totally uh, authentic David Foster Wallace or this act he's putting on. He's like, wow, he's really trying to act like a normal guy. So, yeah. um, but hold on, I, I, I want to get back to talking about uh, David Foster Wallace in a second. But first, I want to ask you about Infinite Jest. Okay. Uh, so what do you know about it? What have you heard about it? Have you read it? I, I am in the process of reading it right now. I started what? reading it for this podcast. So wow. So I have a better understanding. Uh, I started it like on Tuesday or Wednesday. Okay. It's, okay. It is unbelievably long. I am, um, <laughs> it's like I have, I downloaded an Audible. Uh -huh. um, and it's, I think it's 56 hours. Wow. Uh, and seven and a half hours of end notes. Holy. Um, so on, in addition to that. Yes. Oh my yes. gosh. Cause they don't even include the end notes in the version I downloaded. I actually downloaded a second version, which was just the end notes. So I can reference both at the same time. It's very, yeah, uh, we can, we, maybe we'll have another podcast where we could talk about what it's like reading this freaking book because it's freaking ridiculous. But I will say this. <laughs> When I first started reading it, I was very, I, I really did not like it. I thought it was pretentious. I thought it was very, like, overblown. Um, I was very, like, I was coming across, uh, the way I was like, looking at this, which I think is kind of a weird way of looking at it, but for me in 2021, reading this book, it's like David Foster Wallace was destined to write one of the greatest works of fiction of all time. And so he decided that that work of fiction would be a thousand pages and difficult to read. And just as a, just kind of a screw you to anyone who wants to try basically. Wow. And so that's like, that's how I viewed it. And then and in the first 10 hours or so, I was like, Ugh, like, this is, this is ridiculous. I don't understand like who these characters are. I don't understand what's happening most of the time. Most of these scenes kind of just seem to draw, draw, drone on and drag on with all these unnecessary and superfluous details that don't seem to support anything. Um, and then I watched this movie and I, and I was like, okay, I'm looking at this the wrong way, right? This was not a book that he's not like this well-known writer who's like going to write this crazy book. And then everyone's like, wow, this book is so good because it's so long. He wrote a really, really long book, and then people realized that it was good. It was kind of the other... I was putting the cart before the horse in a way. I was, okay. I was confusing cause and effect. And looking at this with a more hum, like humility, I guess, looking <laughs> at it from, a, from the point of view of like, okay, maybe I should give this a chance, I'm I find myself enjoying it more and more as I'm reading it. Um, and I, I did read a little bit about this, like about the story in... Um, uh, on Wikipedia, which helped a lot because it told me what details I needed to really pay attention to. Because um, there's like one end note that is just uh, 45 minutes of um, somebody's um, filmography. It's like a fictional character within the story. Mm -hmm. And it talks about all the different movies that he made um, yeah. within the story. Um, 
And uh, that I, I realized because reading Wikipedia that that was actually an important detail that I needed to pay attention to. So I listened to all of that. And it, and it goes through synopsis of the story, whether it was in color, whether it was a uh, silent movie or not, uh, who was in it, um, right. like who, who distributed it, who directed it, who produced it. It's got like a ridiculous, ridiculous amount of detail that if you were reading it, you could just skip over and go right to the synopsis for each one, right? right. But when you're listening to an audiobook, yeah. Also, well, yeah. yeah. Anyway. <laughs> Imagine listening to somebody talk about the details of a movie, who was in it, whether or not it was in color for that long. Oh my god, cringe. dude. <laughs> it's cringe. so freaking ridiculous. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah, no, it's it's a um No, now it is you a, yeah. okay, but yeah. you you recognize I'm doing a thing. I'm I'm making fun of our podcast again. <laughs> listening to people talk about a movie. Um, oh my god. <laughs> well, I you know, you're echoing a lot of things I've already heard about Infinite Jest. Like I heard it's tremendously long and it's difficult. Um, yes. and like I mentioned before it has sentences that go on for many pages in uh in 2020 there were memes about how owning a copy of infinite jest is a sign of toxic masculinity specifically owning it not reading it pretentiously showing off that you have this big critically acclaimed book on your bookshelf like now that's a guy who's very toxic if he, if he, <laughs> I, you find um, out he owns i feel like book. i agree with that i i feel like some of the i feel like some of his takes in this book are really weird and i do not i don't like them very much and there's there's a lot of like there's at least two characters so far who's one of their main character attributes is that they um like they call women or they, they'll sleep with women with the intention of never calling them again. Like that's like part of their character attribute. There's one of them that calls all the women he sleeps with subjects, which he's called out by another character, but it's still very, yeah, it's very cringy. And it's like, I don't know. I, I don't know if this is something like based on experience that David Foster Wallace has had, or if this is something, you know, that he's imagining or anything, but it's, it's done with, uh, I mean, I don't know. The book is so confusing because it's all very ironic, right? A lot of the things are supposed to be taken at, not taken at face value, but taken at a distance. So nothing is really, nothing that's in the book is really a um, endorsement of anything else. But it's not viewed enough in a clear, it's not viewed as, as critically as I want it to be. There's, just, there's like pickup artist um, shit in this book um yeah uh, well i i listen i don't i can't participate in this conversation because i haven't read it yet so um i'll take your word for it but there was <laughs> like this meme the, uh you know this this uh you know kind of online rage against people who own this book and mm. you know which implies people who read this book but just the, specifically people who own this book it also sparked some anti-backlash where people were saying like wait a minute now and like they started defending the book and saying that the meme is inaccurate and you know it's ironic that the people who are making fun of people for having not read the book also had not read the book uh so i i don't know i'm still basically i haven't decided if i want to read this book or not and i think that this conversation will inform that uh, I okay. like help me come to a decision on whether or not i want to try this uh this colossal book okay but you know that the best meme for infinite from the infinite jest thing is eat is hashtag eat infinite jest you know about this yes i do or this girl tried to eat infinite <laughs> not, jest or not like... this girl jamie freaking loftus one who's of the, this yeah she's a she's an incredible comedian she's a she's like frequent oh. guest in a bunch of these podcasts i i listen to she's absolutely hysterical there's this podcast she did last year called my year in mensa uh where she um she 
takes an IQ test and gets into this like big brain society that's all full of these like toxic guys that all think they're really smart because they took an IQ test once. Um, <laughs> and they harass her for a year. And she talks about it in this podcast. It's a four-part podcast. It's very, very good. New York Times highlighted one of the best podcasts of last year. It's wow. absolutely amazing. And yeah, she's she's awesome. And Eat Infinite Jest is hysterical. Um, and you go and find go find. Well, it. She, I, I saw it on oh Know Your Me when I was looking <laughs> yes. this up. Um, and I may have seen it organically just on Twitter, but uh, yeah, it, this this book has definitely been memed about, uh, which is. It's interesting, uh, but just going back to the length, uh, the closest I've ever gone like to reading a book to of this length is I read A Column of Fire by Ken Follett, which is about 100 pages shorter. It's close to 1,000 pages, so I, I know I can do it. That book, I think, was about 50 hours on Audible, Okay. so I think I could do it if I tried, but like I said, I'm going to wait until the end of this conversation to make that decision. <laughs> Hearing that you're reading it makes me want to read it. Um, just to be able to talk to you about it. But anyway, so that's, that's infinite jest. A lot of the like discourse around infinite jest, I think all like influenced my uh, exploration of who David Foster Wallace is uh, because obviously he, he's been gone for a while now. So it's not like there's been new shit, like mm-hmm. new David Foster Wallace just dropped kind of thing. So um, I think that <laughs> meme probably helped, you know, get me into his stuff. Um, and I actually uh, have spent most of my time interacting with David Foster Wallace's interviews, which is interesting to see this movie about who he is. So let me let me comment a little bit on J- uh, Jason Siegel's performance, which I agree with you. It's totally fantastic. Like David Foster Wallace has so many mannerisms that are effectively emulated in this movie. Uh, he really, like you said, he really becomes David Foster Wallace. Although I felt like he was missing this kind of specific start pause start again that david does in a lot of his interviews that i've seen from the 90s where he's just speaking off the dome and and i know i'm being super particular here i i think jason siegel did really good but david foster wallace constantly does this thing where he will start a sentence and then kind of like pause for a long time like he's like he's waiting for his mouth to catch up with his brain like he, he has to take a moment for things to get calibrated and he wants to say it clearly i think to a certain extent the david foster wallace you see in this movie is like he's kind of an encyclopedia of his own takes and his knowledge and he's able to Mm. kind of just rattle things out basically un uh inhibited by crutch words too much or even just being unclear to a certain extent and i think the real david foster wallace when he was just talking off the dome he is full of kind of like these uh you know just uh you know walls of text that come out of him that you're you have to kind of parse out um and it's great for just listening to someone with a nice voice but i don't think that it's very expedient so i like i understand that in the movie they want to elevate the language to a certain extent they don't want him to talk for forever so i I understand that's what they need to do for a movie so i guess it's not too much of a criticism but i guess like his portrayal is very impressive but i don't think he literally becomes david foster wallace (laughs) if that makes sense Yeah, yeah um but overall i I think that he does a great performance and, and it's a Herculean task to become a person who's this unique and complex. And I, I think he does a great job. It feel like watching this movie feels like being able to spend extra time with David Foster Wallace, which I think is really valuable. That's incredible. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think it's also interesting to compare how he's portrayed in this movie to how he's portrayed in his interviews because, uh, you know, that's, that's the same format. Something that's very consistent with David is that he's, aware 
of the interview itself during the process of being interviewed, you know, in this movie, but also constantly in the interviews that he's actually done in real life. Like he'll comment on the difficulty of the questions or he'll ask the question back to the interviewer or he'll jump to how he thinks his answer will be perceived even before he's finished his answer. Like it's, it's all very well emulated in the way that, uh, David Foster Wallace interviews with or interacts with Lipsky in this film. And it's because David Foster Wallace in real life and in this movie, he's so self-conscious, like in a way, like it's not a way that's exhausting or annoying most of the time. Uh, for me, it provides clarity. I think there are times that like I personally and anybody else are capable of lucid and productive self-reflection, you know, where I'm able to see myself for who I am and my circumstances for what they are. But not all the time. To me, it feels like David constantly lives in this state of clarity where he's aware of himself at all times, which is both illuminating and painful. Like through this state of constant self-awareness, he's able, he's capable of drawing profound conclusions about the human experience, but he also lives in an almost constant state of depression. Um, like just gloomy about like constantly knowing, I don't know, just like knowing what's going on. Yeah. Um, I don't remember exactly where I read this. I think it was in one of Lipsky's articles about uh, Wallace. He talks about how um, depression makes you really self-aware um, or like very self-aware people make you are, are often depressed because their their focus of attention is on themselves and their failures or whatever. And that if you can break that cycle, the the flip side of that coin is curiosity. And mm -hmm. that because you become very obsessed or very interested in in things that are outside of you, and that brings you to this um, to this thing. Yeah, you know, I I agree that he kind of it's really interesting, uh, like because I agree that he kind of he has like this really unique perspective in in things, but I think he's still pretty limited by his own experience. Um, and I reading Infinite Jest, I get that um, sense as well that he doesn't really have a good sense of how other people live he kind of it projects his own his own experience onto how he thinks other people think i think well, well, which do you, is do you feel yeah. like um i mean he qualifies a little bit that he's talking about like w mostly white upper middle class well-educated people like do you feel like it, he gets that experience right i think he does and but i think that that is part of the reason why infinite jest is so uh has such a high barrier to entry it's because it's really for or about a specific group of people right it's not really a universal experience whatsoever so that leads a little bit to the pretentiousness then i think yeah like not just the fact that it's a thousand page book and who the hell has time for that but also exactly but also the book is about the experience of people who might have the time to read a thousand page book you got um, it. yeah and, and i think that's another thing um like the book is important uh, obviously because it's part of why David Foster Wallace is so famous, um, but also like David, it, you know, it, it's, he talks about the process of writing the book and um, he did that in the movie, but he also does that in his interviews in real life. Uh, and they cover a lot of the other topics that David talked about in his interviews in real life, like uh, 
like we said, infinite jest in the process for writing it, talking about media consumption in our culture, consumerism, addiction, writing. Uh, it, it feels like they condensed a lot of things that David talked about throughout his career into this film, where he kind of touches on a lot of things. It's like David Foster Wallace definitely had an opinion on this. David Foster Wallace definitely said mm-hmm. some stuff about this. So like, we're going to give you kind of the the medley here, the, uh, the uh, charcuterie board of David Foster Wallace <laughs> takes. Uh, so you can kind of get a taste of every little not everything probably but you know a lot of the main ones uh that he talked about throughout his life but again this brings us back to what we always say about things that are supposed to be based on reality and and truth and history is how much of the real david foster wallace are we getting here um where do his where what part of that uh charcuterie board it was put there by the studio or by the director or by the writer because they wanted to push some sort of uh, other narrative uh surrounding david foster wallace right and i think that you have to be very cautious about that when you're using this movie to inform your view of who david foster wallace really was um another i mean uh I think we kind of already talked about him, but I, I did want to go a little bit over Lipsky um, and, and like just the purpose that he serves in this movie. Like, I think it's, I liked having someone of similar intellect to David Foster Wallace having a conversation with him. Um, I don't feel like I was listening to a couple of pinheads discuss uh, philosophical theory. It felt <laughs> like I was listening to a couple of smart guys who are thoughtful, uh, just going on about life you know i could listen to that for hours and hours i have uh listened to that for hours and hours and it's it's clear that lipsky is jealous of davis david's success uh you know there's some drama that comes out of that like lipsky just released a book that wasn't super popular uh versus david foster wallace who obviously released uh, a very successful book and then uh there's this thing about how Lipsky's girlfriend is in love with David Foster Wallace because she likes Infinite Jest so much and then Lipsky is hitting on David Foster Wallace's like ex-girlfriend from grad school and you know there's some petty squabble that comes up from that to me it doesn't really this this really did not interest me that much it felt like this felt like more of that like kind of injected drama um maybe it serves as a way to say like look david is is actually a pretty normal guy even he gets pulled into these petty squabbles that just are guaranteed when you interact with other humans um but overall it to me just kind of felt like drumming up a little bit of drama to make sure that the movie's still interesting in the third act I, the way I interpreted this was that there was this kind of overall condescension that came from Lipsky, almost to the point of like Lipsky almost didn't think that Wallace deserved the success that he had. And by him going on this tour, he got, he was able to like, you know, he's off the stage, but he's still on the stage. Right. And he got to hang out with um, Wallace's friends and, you know, and Wallace talks about at the beginning, like, Oh, I wish I could get laid on this tour or something. And Lipsky is kind of like, like edging toward that same goal. Right. He's like, I'm trying to get inside his head, but also like, I want to live his life. I want to be him in some way, even though he says he doesn't want to be him at the end which I think has multiple meanings, right? He wants his success and all of the things that come with it, but he doesn't want to be this sad loner that that come, that David Foster Wallace appears to be, you know? And I think that in that moment where he's hitting, he's, he clearly is hitting on what's his, and David Foster Wallace's ex-girlfriend and when he cowardly denies it, it's, it's so freaking cringy. But um, <laughs> he's like... Uh, 
I, I this is another like example of like he doesn't know what he has kind of thing. It's like, like he's not taking advantage of the situation the way I would. You know, like I I I who have thought long and hard about success and fame and surrounded by it know how I would act in this situation. Right. This guy doesn't know what he you know he's too dumb to realize the uh, this like what he has here I guess. Um, and Lipsky is trying to like like trying to have it both ways, right? He's trying to have the the trappings of fame without any of the consequences of it. Try sure. to live that life without actually having to live that life. Just be a, a tourist in David Foster Wallace's life. Sure. Um and, and yeah, I don't know. I guess it's compelling drama, but uh for me it, it just made me not like Lipsky. <laughs> like honestly yeah. well, just I felt like he was good. kind of I think being that's naive. really I think that's really good. And I really I really like that scene, especially since they don't talk to each other for like a really long time. Like they're sitting away from each other in the um in the uh, uh, airplane, they don't talk to each other in the car at all. They don't talk right? to each other and, while they're looking for the car in the parking yes, lot. Yes, and that eventually was good. they just and then they and then they, they start shouting at each other and then they actually have a conversation. It's just such an example of you know toxic masculinity in a way. It's an example of how men are so bad at communicating in general. Um, <laughs> Dudes and how these, be like these two guys who are <laughs> supposed to be so good at like understanding people, just, like are, are failing at their most fundamental that most fundamental task um and so bad at like apologizing or realizing that like what they did was wrong or or whatever right i think wallace uh does exactly the right thing in that situation where he stands up to levski and tells him that he's out of line and levski's reaction to that is just is like he's angry um but he's angry in a way that he knows he's wrong you know and so he can't like fight back so he has to just stew in it and just yeah, think well, about like childish. how he's failed. yes he is it's very funny <laughs> No, I thought that was great. I really liked that part. Yeah, I guess. I don't know. I, I just, um, if it really happened, I probably, then it's probably important. But um, I don't know. It just, it felt to me, I don't know. I think you did a good job of justifying it. But I think that like that leads us into a larger con like conversation about how this movie um, kind of meshes with David Foster Wallace's beliefs on media consumption. Because um, he's very conscious of the media he consumes david foster wallace talked he's famous for this he says in all his freaking interviews he's like no i don't own a tv uh, like <laughs> i it, mean it, it is a pretty funny thing to say it's well, just so weird yeah well at a certain point you're like um i wonder how much of this is you like believing what you're saying and how much you just love having being able to drop that line in the 90s when everyone else no tv huh um so Anyways, <laughs> he describes television as his greatest addiction. Uh, he has this quote after they return home from buying the uh, junk food from the store. And we, we, we already played this, but I just want to play this snippet again. The technology is just going to get better and better, and it's going to get easier and easier and more and more convenient and more and more pleasurable to sit alone with images on a screen given to us by people who do not love us but want our money. And that's fine in low doses. But if it's the basic main staple of your diet, you're going to die. Well, come on. In a very meaningful way, you're going to die. And, and yeah, this was a this was a uh, interesting line to hear sitting by myself in my uh, apartment <laughs> watching a, a screen of images. <laughs> yes. But um, I don't know. One of the things that's 
so like one of the things about David Foster Wallace's observations that makes them so profound is that they're still applicable even today. Now it's not just a television screen, but what his commentary could be applied to the phone screen, the computer screen, all the screens. Entertainment is easier, more convenient now more than ever. And it's clear that that's not entirely a good thing. Uh, what's ironic is that those screens are now being used to portray David Foster Wallace himself, which leads me to ask, would the real David Foster Wallace have wanted for this movie to be made? Um, and I, I read this question. Yes. No, and and um, I think it's a, a, it's a quintessential, quintessential question when you're analyzing this movie. Um, and I found this article from NPR where they said, according to Alex Koner, co-trustee along with Wallace's widow of the David Foster Wallace Literary Trust, Wallace would not have wanted to be the subject of a movie and the trust doesn't approve of the film. This movie would have been made if this movie would not have been made if David was alive, Koner says. We are very interested in people reading David Foster Wallace's work, which we feel is the best way to learn about him and to remember him. We are not interested in selling David Foster David Foster Wallace the person because he would have hated that and I, I think this is a good take uh, we're lucky that someone as insightful and visionary as David Foster Wallace was a literal writer <laughs> like, um, like not we're not always lucky enough that the person whose brain we still want to pick literally like wrote thousands of pages you know so like I think that that's important to keep in context um, like, there's just so much David Foster Wallace writing out there which gives us the opportunity to still inhabit his mind and really understand his thoughts. I do think that there's something special and even transcendent about reading someone's writing that gives you a level of insight that isn't possible through other means of media. I think it's obvious that David would prefer for someone to read his work rather than watch a movie about him, especially a movie that was made without the consent of his estate, without his input at all, uh, like with how conscious he was of how he's portrayed in media. I think that's super obvious uh, conclusion to come to. Um, in a sense, this movie feels like one last twisted curveball that life is throwing at David even after his death to have the culture he criticized so much try to commodify him in a commercial way through film almost seems too on the nose. Like they're doing exactly what he wouldn't want them to do despite knowing him so well. Yeah, that's really weird. <laughs> yeah. But and I, I mean, I, the thing well, I, is yeah. like, that, like, that's the thing is like, you have to make the argument like this is the argument that people make all the time. Like when they, when, they have, when there's remakes or something, when the Lorax came out and stuff, it's like, oh, you know, like the Lorax movie, like it was kind of forgettable and dumb, but it, what it did for a little bit was it brought people back to the Lorax book and it, it got people reading that book to their children again. And it got people, you know, thinking about Dr. Seuss again and like his, uh, his effect on the world, you know, maybe that, maybe right now that's like a, a weird take, but like um, the, the same thing is true here, right? I would not, I would not have read more about David Foster Wallace and learned more about his life or anything or how interesting of a person he was or um, if I hadn't watched this movie, you know? And I think this movie does a really interesting thing in that it doesn't necessarily portray him as like, it portrays him sympathetically, but it doesn't necessarily like pull all of his punches, right? It does definitely makes him look kind of like a weirdo. Um, and I think that 
kind of makes him kind of compelling and makes him interesting and someone that you might want to learn more about. But it's also done in such a careful and kind of gentle way that um, it really does feel like it's like it's kind of an it kind of is an homage, even if it is not uh, directly a um, endorsed by his estate. You know, it is bringing people to him, even if it's doing uh, even if it's doing it in a way that maybe he would not have approved. It's a it's um, you know, it's pointing it itself toward the the thing it's meeting people where they are right people are watching movies that aren't reading books uh they may because of watching this movie want to read infinite chest and find out for themselves right so it's a um it's a bridge to, to that and for that reason and because i think this movie is so good i think it justifies its existence for that reason yeah and, and this is all this isn't to say that i didn't like the movie i really did i really enjoyed it and i think what you just said is very valid it's meeting people where they are and it very well could encourage people it might encourage me to read the book which you know i wouldn't have done otherwise despite having known of david foster wallace's existence so i i think that's all very valid um i i think it's actually an added component to have this aspect of the movie because while you're thinking about some of the concepts in this movie you can also ponder how this movie's existence meshes with the real david foster wallace's worldview um and if if anything i think that that like again that's why i put it in that way where it's like kind of another twisted curveball because david foster wallace is constantly gripping with the reality of existence and i think that having a portrayal of him in media that he didn't consent to is just another uh, iteration of that media landscape that he's he spent so much time analyzing. Absolutely. Um, okay, well, are we ready to move on to our cool Easter eggs and fact checks? And fact checks. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> uh, the only thing that I... I, I there's a... Um, I'll just mention this. There's a full statement from the David Foster Wallace estate that I found through the LA Times and the Guardian. We'll have links in our description if you want to read it yourself. That's a it's a it's a pretty um, a pretty direct uh, discredit of this movie, uh, or or not necessarily discredit, but non endorsement, I would say. Um, and uh, I'll read one part of it. For the avoidance of doubt, there's no circumstance under which David Foster Wallace Let Literary Trust would have consented to the ad- adaptation of this interview into a motion picture, and we do not consider it an homage. Um, so they, they were very much against it and they don't, uh, they actually mention in here that they made it clear to the producers of the movie, why they thought this was a bad idea, but they don't mention what those reasons were. And I couldn't exactly find them. So, um, it, yeah, it's just interesting because, uh, anytime you have a story like this, right, there's always going to be two sides to it. There's gonna be people that love it and think it's great. And there are people that are going to hate it and, you know, and probably dive into why they think it's inaccurate. Um, and for this, it's very it's hard to say what's accurate or not because it's very much from Lipsky's point of view, right? And is it even from Lipsky's point of view? It's, it's really from the director's point of view of Lipsky's book. Um, but at the same time, uh, you know, there was actual events that did happen and whether they happened the way that Lipsky portrayed them in his book is, you know, nobody will know, you know? Um, and so for that reason, it's not so much like a, a list of historical events as much as it's a portrayal of a certain person. And for that reason, um it's hard to fact check that kind of thing right and i think that david foster wallace is the type of he's like the um type of unique person that almost demands this type of portrayal where Mm -hmm. it, it is such a monumental task to try to encompass who this person was so just if you're looking at it purely from the cinematic side if you're just looking at it as like a a challenge to uh create this type of art 
it begs to exist. It's it's um, almost a foregone conclusion that you would have something like this. Right. Um, so again, I, I don't want to come across as like one-sided on this issue. I think it's an interesting uh, discourse to participate in, but I, I definitely don't think that we should try to abolish the existence of this movie or something like that. I think you just need yeah. to take it into the context of the larger picture of who David Foster Wallace is and what else his, what other works are out there to show you who he actually was. Absolutely. More context definitely adds to it. And the asterisk at the end of this is saying not endorsed by this state is I think helpful in its, um, in understanding this movie too. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, definitely. Okay. I got, I got another one. I got, I got a quote for you for this. Dave Wallace. I know who you are. <laughs> My amanuensis, Mr. Boswell. <laughs> Mr. Boswell. Hi, clever. Hi. Right this way. So this is a, this is when uh, David Foster Wallace is about to go on a radio show, I believe, and they meet like one of the uh, production assistants, and he introduces uh, Lipsky as Mr. Boswell, which is a reference to James Boswell, uh, who is a famous biographer. He wrote one of like the most uh, famous biographies of any. Like in history, um, it was the biography was of Dr. Samuel Johnson. Um, you may not have heard of Samuel Johnson, but you may have seen his face because this there's this crazy there's this great meme of like an old painting of a guy kind of looking at you like what are you doing kind of thing. Uh, well, we can post a picture of it. Yeah, it's a very yeah, it's, famous well, it's, uh, meme. It's sometimes paired with another one of him like looking at a piece of paper, and then this uh, meme, is, yeah, this yeah. image is put as him like reading it and then looking at you like, "What on earth am I like <laughs> supposed to do with this info?" Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so I've definitely seen this before. Um, yeah. So, so sorry, that is Boswell. No, this is Samuel. Sa- uh, that's Johnson, Samuel Johnson. Okay, who is uh, who was Boswell's subject uh, for okay. his biography? So the, the, it's is considered one of the greatest biographies written in English. But some modern car- critics object that the work cannot be considered a proper biography. But it was extremely uh, influential in the uh, genre of biographies in general. Um, so. Uh, uh, Dr. Samuel Johnson uh, is famous for a bunch of different things. He, he did a whole bunch of, like a really prolific writer and stuff. One of the things that he helped uh, write was a dictionary of the English language back in 1746. Oh, wow. So, um, yeah, he was, he, was pretty, he was a pretty big deal. Look at the brains on Johnson over here literally writing the language. <laughs> yes. That's a good that's a good meme. Uh as far as or, or a good joke, I guess I should say. For, it is a good meme as well, but uh for David Foster Wallace to slip that one in. That's Absolutely. like a that's like the level of like pinhead discourse that I'm glad that this movie wasn't entirely because it would have gone way over my head. It's uh I also liked the inclusion of NPR in this movie. I guess I didn't mention that yet, but yeah. I liked that they had um some mentioned NPR, especially because uh, even though I, I couldn't find the real version of this Minneapolis uh, St. Paul interview, I, I don't know if it is even real, uh, but I did find David Foster Wallace's interview on Fresh Air with, that he did around this time uh, oh, in wow. the 90s. Yeah, and it's uh, it's good. And he talks about, have you ever heard of his, uh, like, I don't think it's research necessarily, but the writing David Foster Wallace did on cruises. On yes, uh, I was reading it last night. It's like oh, twenty four so pages good. long. Have it's you read so any good. of it? No. Well, okay. And I'm such a like uh, <laughs> like illiterate Andy because all my David Foster Wallace. <laughs> I knew you were gonna be some sort of Andy, but I didn't know which one you were gonna be. <laughs> <laughs> well, I 
have engaged with a lot of David Foster Wallace, but almost entirely visually and audio. You know, like I've listened to him talk, I've heard his commencement speech, like I've I've but I have done very little reading. If anything, the reading of David Foster Wallace that I've done has been David Foster Wallace like reading out loud from Infinite Chest. So um no I haven't, but I have heard his comments on cruises and no, i think it's so it's hilarious funny, it's it's very it's very good it's it's pretty long um but it's pretty entertaining and he talks a lot about all these different things it's it's pretty uh i was trying to find this oh man i wish i had written down this quote it's uh it's very it's very clever um it's just this i remember there's, there's something in lipsky's uh, article about him or one of the interviews he does where he says that this was a, a genius move by harper's who is the the uh, magazine that foster was or wallace was writing for yes um and they just said instead of giving him some sort of like intense investigative journalist role or something they just gave him a notepad and said go on a cruise and they knew <laughs> him well enough to know that he would come back with something amazing so yes <laughs> it was just this it was just kind of like pointing him in a certain direction um and he yeah, he wrote this in 1996 around the same uh the same year that um infinite jest was published so yes yep and that's why it was like the most the main thing he was doing when uh he was being interviewed on npr it's great it's great to hear him talk i mean part of and this is going back to like that kind of start pause stop thing or start yeah. thing that i mentioned earlier just his cadence is so unique his his uh speech is so unique um it's you know when you're listening to david foster wallace like there's nothing like it so um i i assume uh and i'm sure it is true that his writing is the same way where it's like it's truly unique in its own it way. is it is unique uh, it took me uh, about 10 hours to get to kind of get that but the second 10 hours have been pretty good. <laughs> Very good. That's what we love to hear. <laughs> oh, my God. Okay, one more, one more Easter egg before we forget. Um, okay. In our intro quote, we played a, uh, a little clip of um, the movie. And at the very end, they have a, uh, a, a clip of David Foster Wallace speaking into uh, Lipsky's microphone or into his recorder. Um, and he says... Um, Although, of course, you end up becoming yourself, which is the title of David Lipsky's book um, about this road trip, which is what the movie is based on. So, which it little, is also a microcosm of like the way that David Foster Wallace says stuff, you know, yes. like, <laughs> which yes. I think is appropriate Although, of for the course, title. yeah, it's a, it's a lot of extra, <laughs> but it's also, extra right. But it's like, although, of course, you end up becoming yourself. It's like, well, does that even that sentence mean anything? Well, with a little <laughs> bit of you know, analysis, you're like, oh, wow, that really encompasses. Yeah, my I'm brain saying, is leaking out of my ears. Yes. <laughs> it's like, what is that quote from uh, that pseudo intellectual guy who is a classical liberal? Oh, uh, oh my brain is um, in recovery mode from all these high level ideas. <laughs> oh, my God. It's so funny. You said that. I I've had although of course you end up becoming yourself stuck in my head like on repeat over the last couple of days after watching this movie but right. but, but this phrase that was in my head before that was that exact one my brain is in recovery <laughs> mode from taking in all these high level ideas uh, I I literally said that verbatim yesterday after I finished this movie it was it was, uh, it was euphoric <laughs> <laughs> thank you Dave Rubin yes uh, that's his name I I don't care to remember it anyways um, okay. Joey, do you have any quotes you want to go I have a quote. I have a quote. Uh, this one is shorter. I was just thinking, um, if it wasn't a chemical imbalance and it wasn't drugs and alcohol, I think um, it was much more that I lived an incredibly American life. This idea that if I could just achieve X and Y and Z, that 
everything would be okay. So uh, this is after Lipsky and Wallace have another argument. Um, on the day before Lipsky leaves, um, he comes into his room. Wallace comes into his room and and says this to him. Um, I think this is a uh, this is such an interesting quote. Um, one of the other things he mentions in the in the uh, one of the other quotes from Wallace um, is how he tried to live a he tried to solve his problems through uh, like radical action, yes. uh, where he would just do a bunch of things as more as intensely as he could um and that would solve his depression or his anxiety or whatever right um but that kind of relies into both of these quotes the both the radical action one and the one here is kind of a portmanteau of a couple different quotes that wallace actually did say uh that was quoted in lipsky's uh, article about him so uh, these are these are real things that he said and that are portrayed in the movie what i think is really interesting about this is i've been thinking a lot about what it means to be American, I guess, and what specifically what media, how media describes itself as American, what they mean by that. American psycho, American beauty, um, you know, uh, things like that. There's a lot of different stuff out there that describes itself as specifically American. And I wonder, like, what, do, what, is, what exactly is American? I think Wallace gives a answer here, which is that it's about achievement right? American life means you achieve something and that gives your life meaning. The other thing, of course, being radical action or you do something insane, like write a thousand page book and that gives your life meaning, which is yes. again, sort of achievement in a way. So um, that's the best answer I've had so far, but I'll keep you updated on my, what does American mean? Oh yeah, <laughs> mean. no, no. And I, I think it's so important to bring this up. I'm glad you did because uh, one of the important aspects of who david foster wallace is is he is american um so a lot of his i know that we said that his analysis of life is kind of constrained to his particular subsection of american life but still it is uh you know distinctively american and and that has added value to me as an american so i i do think that's really i know that i meme about like america being number one and like oh i'm glad this movie had an american in it but it is really uh i think just added value for me to be like this guy is making these observations about the culture that i participated in as well like he's not criticizing british culture or spanish culture or french culture he's he's or not criticizing analyzing the same culture that i exist within which is obviously going to be more profound to me as a participant in that uh culture like when he talks about taking radical action i'm like oh my god that is so american to be like that's it i'm getting fit i'm running 10 miles tomorrow that <laughs> is exactly like it goes that is so parallel to american thinking um, absolutely so i i thought that was another great just kind of lucid moment from david foster wallace in this movie absolutely yeah i i one other thing that he he doesn't really talk about but i and maybe not is not as evident at this point but america right now is an empire in decline um and there's a certain depression that comes along with that a certain mood of kind of resignation but also like just um just despair that come that affects the people that are in an empire as it declines and um you, i think you can start to see signs of that in maybe the 90s and stuff uh, of people being disaffected um but i think that's even more prevalent now as we kind of strain the the political discourse and and become more and more polarized and more and more uh, factional so it's um yeah, he's you know, he's kind of ahead of his time in his uh, in his depression in a way. <laughs> yes, uh, he's so ahead of his time in in many ways, but definitely, um, yeah, in that way as well. 
Okay, Joey, I believe you know what time it is. It is time for us to go a little deeper. deeper, deeper. Okay, there's one thing that this movie does that is going to bother me forever. And that is the way that they talk about the way David Foster Wallace died and how he, and like the, the role that this, this book or his worldview played in that, in that death. Uh, David Lipsky in 2008 wrote an article for Rolling Stone called, um, hold on, let me scroll. It's called The Lost Years and Last Days of David Foster Wallace, where he interviews a bunch of his friends and family members. It's a very good article. It's very moving. And he talks about uh, a bunch of things that he didn't know about until he'd started doing this article, um, including that David Foster Wallace was on antidepressants for 20 years leading up to his death. Um, the He was... It's what was so interesting about this is that he started he when he was a kid he did all these crazy things he acted out he was very um he, he started displaying the signs of kind of depression uh, probably like around 16 or so and then he like for years and years he was kind of dealing with this stuff and he eventually ended up in a like on suicide watch in like a padded room or somewhere like he describes in the movie um and he realizes that he needs to change the way he's living his life. He needs to do something different. And so then at this point is one of the, one of the things he starts doing is taking this antidepressant and he ends up writing infinite jest and achieving uh, most of his career while he's on this drug. Um, and that's not at all mentioned in this movie. It's not something that Lipsky actually knew uh, while uh, or found out while he was doing it. It's not something he hid from people. He just didn't had no, Wallace had effectively hidden that fact from him. Uh, during their time together uh but they uh what's interesting is that in this movie they they kind of make the hint that like oh like wallace's worldview is that if the world gets worse then i can't be here anymore or something or like that if this is a um you know maybe this is a moment of weakness or something or or you know he was just such a troubled mind that's what got him and that's why he killed himself and that's not really what happened according at least according to lipsky's article uh there were uh, Walsh was on this antidepressant for 20 years and he was fine. And then, but one of the side effects was like high blood pressure or something. And he had a scare where he ate something that reacted poorly with the drug. So he decided he was going to try something different and they tried to get him on all these, they weaned him off of the old one and tried to get him onto all these new ones. Cause apparently you can't just switch. Apparently it's really bad for you. Um, and nothing worked. They tried all these different drugs. None of them worked. Uh, they even tried electroshock therapy that didn't work. In the last few years of his life, um, after he stopped taking this drug, he was declining in his own like just mental state. Um, and it was clear to everyone around him that this was happening, including in Wallace himself. He knew that this was happening. And it, you got the sense, at least from the last paragraphs of this article, that he knew he was dying and that he knew that he was going to succumb to this eventually, um, the same way that anybody who has any sort of terminal disease would die. And when, so basically he's, he was left alone by his wife for a few hours and then he hung himself. Um, and that was, and that was that. What so, what I hate about this movie is that it still fetishizes suffering. It says, oh, you have to be a, to be a great artist or something. You have to write one of the seminal works of fiction in the last 50 years. You have to be depressed or weird or like kind of messed up in the head. And that's not, the opposite is true. You know, Wallace, while he was on this uh, drug was the most productive and, and most influential he's ever been. And um, to to say that like, oh, you have to be some sort of like troubled or depressed person in order to create art is a really sick way to look at life. And I think it's, um, I think it's really, um, 
dangerous as well because it, it encourages it doesn't encourage people to uh to seek help when they need it and maybe that's a little bit on wallace himself because apparently he was ashamed of the fact that he was on this medication but it was um uh, but it certainly helped him a lot and it would and it helps a lot of other people as well i think that you end up spiraling when you're in a kind of state like this and you end up focusing on things that don't matter like uh, your your own output or whatever when you really should be focused on the world around you and how you can affect that which is ultimately what wallace did it's just really interesting that like the movie the movie omits these like crucial details about his life, which I think would totally color the situation differently. Because again, the movie is is talking is puts up this kind of intuition that oh, like you know, it's because he's such a unique person, and he's so troubled that he was able to do this, and that's not it's the actually the opposite that it is. It's because he sought help that he was able to do this. I think that's really important to say because you could just extrapolate from this movie and be like, well, the reason he eventually had to take his own life was because the progression of pornography technology. He mm-hmm. he told us, he foretold that like you're going to have to take me off this planet. And that was him for you know I'm saying like you you could connect dots that truly are not there. Uh so uh, yeah, I I think that is definitely important to include. Um, it's such a tragic way for him to go. And also it, it almost adds to the mythic of David Foster Wallace, right? Because, um, it's, it's like kind of when artists die before their time, it's like, then they're truly appreciated. That's when they're most relevant is when they're dead. Um, so I, I, it's definitely important when you consider who David Foster Wallace was, but I think it's important to take away the right conclusion from that and not try to, like you said, fetishize his depression or his death, uh, yeah. to, to keep it in context. Absolutely. And I, I mean, he would be he'd be around about 60 right now if he was still alive. So I would love to hear his takes. I would love yeah. to hear his takes. Um, Absolutely. Everyone would. Yeah. You know, uh, Noam Chomsky still kicking. He's like 90, you know, and yeah. people love talking to him about all this stuff. He's another like huge media critic. And so like this is, you know, he, and he was a teacher and, and all this stuff. He had all these students that loved him. Like there's so much that he was doing that in and for him to go out this way, it's just a, something that we, it's just a tragedy that we're all lost to, you know? Oh, yeah. And, and again, it's, it's like, it's a failure of medicine in a way to fix this problem that everyone knew he had. He was willing to do the work to, to get there. It just wasn't, there just wasn't anything there for him to, to help him really. I, I wonder if he ever talked about mental health stigma in, uh, in any of his books or just in conversation, because I think it's, a good way i don't know like that's that's the way i try to fight against this or do personal advocacy against this type of thing is like to take away the stigma it's okay to be not okay and right. um just to to seek help it is on you to actually seek help but it's also on the you know the community and the culture to to not uh look down on people who are looking for help you know to make it as available and uh, accessible as possible so yeah and that's really yeah. what i want to take what i take away from this really you know is it's there's nothing like the, everything great that David Foster Wallace did um, happened while he was doing something for himself, right? He wasn't, he wasn't putting himself through more suffering in order to create great art. He was, he was helping himself first and then going out and, and, and doing things that you know, ch- pretty much changed the world. So it's, it's um, yeah, exactly what you said. Remove that stigma. He does talk, in Infinite Jest, is all, there's a lot of talk about addiction. Um, right, but, definitely. But that's not exactly the same thing. Okay. Well, as we do at the end of every episode, we are going to deliver our ratings. Joey, what rating do you want to give to the end of the tour? I give this movie repeat viewings until it's meaningless. (laughs) 
<laughs> I give this movie a 1,000 plus page book, a tome. Uh, a tome. Yeah, something you can sit on and, and adjust your height. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Joey, what's next on Affable Chat? Next, we are doing Christopher Nolan's Tenet. Tenet, that's right. And one of the movies actually came out somewhat recently. Uh, the only movie of 2020. Sense, yeah, <laughs> which I'm sure we'll talk about uh, that context in, in that episode. Be sure to subscribe to us on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. And wherever you listen to us, make sure you leave us a review. It really does help us grow. You can reach us on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at AffableChat on all three, or send us an email, affablechat at gmail.com. We also have a YouTube channel where we upload uh, clips of the podcast, or the whole podcast even, and clips from streams and other videos. It's a, it's a smorgasbord of more comments, or content, I should say. <laughs> yes, and your comments are welcome there if you want to add them and help raise our engagement. We've been co- uh, uploading a lot recently, actually. Um, Affable Chat is live on Tuesday nights at 7 p.m. Eastern on Twitch. That's twitch.tv slash affablechat. Come uh, come hang out with us live on Tuesday nights. But that's going to do it for this episode of Affable Chat. For Affable Chat, I'm Benjamin. And I'm Joey. Thanks for listening.